This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Business leaders often look to highly social activities to generate ideas and innovation. From group collaboration and brainstorming to large meetings and open format offices, those who are highly verbal, bold, and outgoing often thrive in these environments. In Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, author Susan Cain challenges the extrovert ideal and many common business practices in which the ideas and leadership potential of introverts are often overlooked. Among the researchers she cites is Wharton management professor Adam Grant, who recently interviewed Kane for Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, Susan. First of all, congratulations on the success of your book, Quiet. I know you've been on the bestseller list for well over a month now and just had a million viewers on your TED Talk last week. Thank you, Adam. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation in part because uh, when we first started talking about introversion about six years ago, you were just beginning research for your book. I'm curious, in the, in the past six years of research, what's the most either interesting or surprising discovery you've made about introverts and extroverts? Oh, gosh. You know, there have been a bunch. I mean, I, one of them really has been related to the incredible research that you have done, and that is that we have such a perception in this culture of um, effective leadership having almost necessarily a style that's very bold and charismatic um, and dynamic. And it's been really interesting to me to see so many examples in my research of really effective leaders who are shy or, or introverted or both, um, and to see so much research backing that up. You know, so I, I was seeing individual examples of it everywhere I was looking, but, but there's also your research and the research of others that really shows that, that we have a very limited idea, really, of what leadership consists of, and um, and leaders who take a, a quieter, uh, you know, approach that's kind of quiet but coupled with a fierce will can be incredibly effective. Um, so that was one surprising thing. And then the other that was so interesting to me was to learn that there are introverts and extroverts in almost every species of the animal kingdom. I mean, like literally all the way down to fruit flies, you see, you see fruit flies who tend to sit still in place, and then other fruit flies who kind of roam around in an exploratory way. Um, and you know, and that's true because these two types have different survival strategies in the animal world, but of course the same thing is true with humans. On the former count, when you think about successes of introverted leaders, what are the, the skill sets and the habits that introverted leaders need to learn in order to be effective or in order to adapt to an extroverted world? Well, you know, I think the primary one that comes to mind is public speaking. And by the way, that, that's not an issue for all introverts. There really is a, a subset of introverts who are quite comfortable with public speaking and really naturally very good at it. Um, but introverts in general are disproportionately likely to suffer from stage fright and that kind of thing uh, compared to extroverts. And so I think that's probably the number one thing. And, and it is doable, and it's a question of kind of desensitizing yourself to the horrors of the spotlight by, by taking small steps to put yourself in environments um, where you get to speak in public, but ideally to do it at first in situations that are very mellow and low stakes and low key um, so that you can get used to the feeling of all eyes on you without actually having any consequences <laughs> if, you, if you screw up the first bunch of times. And, you know, you kind of learn after that that you do screw up and, and that's okay and you'll get better with time. 
So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that, especially because you've, shall we say, come out of the introvert closet and spent a lot of time working on your own speaking style. What were some of the techniques and practices that were most helpful for you to overcome stage fright? Uh, gosh. Well, you know, as I said, I, I really, the number one practice, the, the number one tip is just making sure that you do it and forcing yourself to. So, like, in my case, I, um, I joined a local Toastmasters group. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with Toastmasters, it's a worldwide organization where you meet in local chapters uh, either once a week or once every two weeks, and you practice public speaking with a very supportive group. And uh, I, I found that, uh, you know, my Toastmasters group meets on Thursday nights, every other Thursday. And I found that every other Thursday would roll around and I would come up with every reason imaginable uh, why I really couldn't make it that night. And there were a lot of nights that I just stayed home. Um, but then there were other nights where I pushed myself to go and was always really glad that I did. So, yeah, so the number one thing is showing up. Um, another thing that's really important is breathing correctly and you know I think we all hear about breathing sometimes in a kumbaya way or in a way that we associate with practices like yoga or meditation but you really need it at the podium to be breathing correctly um, because if you don't your voice comes out all wrong um, and you don't feel you, you don't you don't feel as good or as confident and I found when I started working with a coach she told me that I was breathing all wrong um, and what you, you what you should be doing is um, that when you inhale, the the breath should all be coming in, so that your belly is filling up like a balloon. And um, if you're more of a nervous speaker, you might be doing exactly the opposite. You, you might, when you do your inhales, have your belly kind of sucking in. And uh, so that's something that's worth working through. And thinking more broadly about the role of introverts in the workplace. Um, one of the, the points you've made in your book is that many introverts feel pressure to conform to an extrovert ideal. And I was curious if you could talk to us a little bit about what a workplace would look like that's better designed for introverts. Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. Well, the first place I would start is with the office design. You know, so many, the vast majority of our workplaces nowadays are open plan offices where we all work, you know, in these environments without walls and uh, have very little privacy. And I would really flip that on its head. You know, I, I think that the ideal office environment would have privacy for everybody as the kind of default, but then when you le- but, but, um, but at the same time, I'm not saying, you know, that we should have no social interactions. That would be crazy. Um, so I think the pri- private office spaces should be the default, but then when you step outside of that private and personalized space, then you should be in a space that encourages the kind of casual, serendipitous um, interactions that really can give rise to creative breakthroughs. Um, you know, so we all hear about a, an office like a Pixar that where Steve Jobs purposely designed it so that just even to go to the bathroom, you had to go into a, a big open space where you would be bouncing around with your colleagues. And I think that's a great thing. I'm all for it. Um, I just say the default should be a zone of privacy, but then when you leave it, you should be out in that other kind of space. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that works probably the least for introverts and extroverts alike are the more formal spaces where people come together in formal meetings. And sometimes those serve a purpose, and we all have to do it, of course. Um, but the casual interactions are really the better ones. So, so, so the first thing is office design. Um, and then the second thing is really just the acknowledgement that, that all of us um, can think creatively when we are alone and, and that that needs to be a part of any kind of decision-making process. Um, so, 
so that anytime you're trying to make a decision about something or or to get the best of, of your workers' brains, um, you really need to be building into that process a time when employees go off by themselves to think through the problem without uh, the distortions of group dynamics. So this brings me to a more basic question. I think you know, many of us sort of who fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum wonder, how do I know if I'm an introvert or an extrovert? And you know, I think when, when people think about introversion, they tend to think about the Myers-Briggs. And certainly Carl Jung did us sort of a great service by calling attention to this important trait of personality. At the same time, many experts feel that he missed the boat a little bit in terms of what is the core essence of being an introvert or an extrovert. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit on, on what you found in your research and how you would fundamentally define what it means to be an introvert versus an extrovert. Yeah, that is, it's an important and tricky question because, as you're alluding to, you know, there really are as many definitions of introversion and extroversion as there are personality psychologists. You know, and there, there's so little agreement about what, what this trait really is. Um, and in some ways, I'm more interested in, in the trait from a cultural and popular point of view than I am from a you know, specific personality psychology point of view, because I think what really matters is how do people live it and feel it um, in their workplaces, in their schools, in their personal lives. But, but having said all that, what I would come down to is that it really has to do with differences in how you respond to stimulation, um, and in particular, social stimulation. So extroverts really do crave more stimulation than introverts do. You know, they, they need more stimulation to feel most alive and most excited and most happy. Um, and introverts feel very alive when they're in quieter environments. Um, and, you know, in fact, there's one, I know you're familiar with it, Adam, there's a really important study by the psychologist Russell Gein who gave people problems to solve and found that the introverts did better when the background noise was lower and the extroverts did better at, the, at this problem solving when they were in, in louder environments. And that's really, you know, so this is a question of stimulation and who does best with how much of it. And that's a profound insight because so many of our workplaces are kind of one-size-fits-all when it comes to the amount of background stimulation. Um, and yet, you know, all this research is telling us that if we really want to maximize people's talents, we need to find ways of varying the, the levels of stimulation that they're subject to so that everybody is in their optimal zone. So for introverted listeners who don't always have full control over the amount of stimulation in their environments, what are some steps that they can take to avoid burnout or minimize overload? Yeah. Um, well, one thing is that you tend to have more control than you think you do um, when, once you feel entitled to really look for it. So, for example, let's say you know that you have um, a full morning of meetings. Well, Maybe you can take steps to say, you know what, I'm not going to schedule anything for lunch. I am going to go off and have lunch by myself that day. Um, you know, so to, to do what, what our mutual friend uh, Brian Little, the per great personality psychologist Brian Little, calls restorative niches, which are, you know, to, to build places into your day and into your work where, where you can go off and take the breaks that you need. Um, you know, and I found some people in my research doing this by wearing noise-canceling headphones if, if their workplaces allowed it. Um, and you can do it in really subtle ways, too. You know, I, I was always intrigued um, by the memoir uh, of Robert Rubin, who served as the Secretary of the Treasury under Bill Clinton. He never identifies himself as an introvert, but it's pretty clear that he is um, if you read his book. And one of the things he says is he would sit in these meetings at Capitol Hill, and these were meetings where 
you know, the, the MO for most people was to jockey to, to sit in the most powerful seat in the room at the meeting. And Robert Rubin never wanted to do that. He said he was always most comfortable sitting slightly off to the side. You know, he was kind of like destimulating things for himself. And he said from that position off on the side, he never felt that he was worried about being overlooked. He said you could always say, Mr. President, I think this thing or that thing. Um, but he was situating himself in a place that was comfortable for him. And I think um, I, I found that remarkable because I think few people have the self-confidence to do that. And most people feel instead that they should be placing themselves right in the center, even if that's not uh, what's natural for them. That's fascinating. Um, you, you made a comment at the, at the beginning of that story about how he didn't quite identify himself as an introvert. And I think this is a dilemma for a lot of us when we come to work with new people or we join an unfamiliar team. How much self-disclosure should we do? Um, what's your view on sort of the, the degree to which introverts and extroverts should be clear about where they stand on the personality continuum? Yeah, I think this is such a tricky question. Um, you know, I was struck by uh, Douglas Conant, um, who recently stepped down as CEO of Campbell Soup and very, very effective and beloved there. Um, he, he posted a blog, uh, he did a blog post for Harvard Business Review, and he talks about having been a shy and introverted leader. And he says that it was very effective for him to tell his, his uh, employees and his colleagues that this is who he was so that they wouldn't mistake his demeanor for aloofness or uncaring. And, you know, for him that really worked. But I do often wonder, well, you know, he was in a position of leadership where he already had respect. Can you, can you get away with that? Um, you know, right from the get-go. And I think that that really requires a pretty astute reading of what the social dynamics are like in your organization and whether, whether people are open to those kinds of discussions or not. Um, and I do think that it helps to kind of establish relationships and establish credibility before you have those discussions. But then once, once that groundwork has been laid, it can be incredibly helpful to, to talk about these things in, a, in an open way. Um, but, uh, you know, also to be careful to use language that is not, um, when, if you're describing yourself as an introvert, you need to make sure you're doing it not in an apologetic way and not in a way that puts you down for your introversion, but is rather just sort of neutrally describing a personality style. And you've mentioned that you're interested in this topic from a cultural perspective. Are there cultures outside of the United States that you've been especially impressed by in terms of their sort of equal embrace of introverts and extroverts? Yeah, well, you know, in, in my book, um, I, I spent a whole chapter actually comparing Far Eastern uh, uh, styles of interaction and personality with the West, and it's really quite different in traditional Far Eastern cultures, um, you know, particularly in the Confucian belt, uh, China and Japan and so on. Um, because in these cultures, you know, it, it, group dynamics are organized completely differently. Um, so the group is much more important than the individual. And though that, that would sound as if it lends itself to gregariousness, it's actually in some ways the opposite. Because if what you care about is harmony in your group, then for each individual, um, speaking out and calling attention to yourself is not only less important, it's also threatening to the group. So in these cultures, there's a long tradition of viewing words as potentially dangerous weapons. Because they can get their speaker into trouble, um, and they can hurt other people's feelings. And so people who are naturally more predisposed to silence are often seen as being very wise and judicious and reserved. And, you know, they, and, and this, this, this percolates into all different aspects of social interaction. Um, you know, in fact, there's one fascinating study where they compare 
Chinese children, um, school children with, with kids in Canada, and they found that in China, the children who were shy were respected and admired among their peers. And in Canada, of course, it was just the opposite. Now, the interesting thing is this is actually starting to change, and this study was repeated uh, just a few years ago, and, and the, the results are now starting to look much more Western. Um, but, but I think we still do see these differences to a great extent even today. What would you say are the most inaccurate stereotypes that introverts and extroverts hold of each other? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, one thing is I think introverts are, by extroverts, perceived as shy, um, and they are not necessarily. You know, so the person who is sitting quietly in a meeting, let's say, they might be quiet because they're shy and afraid of what other people think of them, but they might be quiet just because they don't do their best in that kind of a think-on-your-feet, you know, conversation-moving-quickly type of environment, and, and they might just do better, you know, where things proceed sort of more slowly and more deliberately. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, misperceptions of extroverts, I, I think that introverts often, well, I will say introverts sometimes see extroverts as shallow, and that's a really unfair perception. You know, extroverts almost by definition like to think on their feet, and if you're thinking on your feet, you end up saying a bunch of things that are only half cogitated. Um, but that doesn't mean that comes from a shallow place. It just means that you're vocalizing your thought process. So the same things that introverts are thinking inside their head that no one else gets to hear, extroverts are saying out loud. And you know, that, 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 that means that you're presenting completely different things to, to the people who are hearing you. But the end result of your thoughts might be equally deep and e- equally profound. That's a very helpful distinction. Are there, Susan, for you, burning questions about introversion and extroversion that have yet to be answered? Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, I think that the line of research that, um, that you are on, Adam Grant, with uh, introversion and leadership, I, I think we're only at the very beginning of it. I, I think there's so much more that we can know um, about what kinds of situations uh, are best suited to introverts and extroverts and how they can most effectively partner with each other. Um, so that's something I, I, I hope there will be more research on in the future. You know, I, I've always been intrigued by, by leadership pairs that are really effective. Like, for example, at Facebook, you know, you see Mark Zuckerberg working along, very introverted, working alongside Sheryl Sandberg, who's kind of famously a people person, and that seems to be a very effective duo. And, you know, so how can we... Um, get these kinds of pairs to come together more frequently. What, what are the uh, what are the tools that they need to work together at their best? I think all these questions are are ripe for uh, further investigation. Do you think the same dynamics are important at lower lower levels of an organization? Oh gosh, yeah. I, I think that they're important all the way through. I mean, they're important anytime human beings interact with each other. So low, middle, and high. Um, you know, I, I've come to believe that introversion and extroversion are as fundamental as who, to who we are and to our identities as gender. So, you know, just the way gender is important um, among any humans, same thing is true here. And I'm quite curious. So you, you spent six years doing research for the book, writing the book. You've been coming out of your comfort zone to speak about it quite frequently. Um, what what has changed in the way that you operate on a daily basis as an introvert based on all that you've learned? Huh. You know, that's interesting. I don't know that anything has changed. I, you know, I mean, it's changed in the sense of I'm spending my days differently now because I've been on book tour for the last couple months. 
so, you know, before that, I would, you know, my day would consist of getting up in the morning and taking my laptop to a cafe and sitting and writing. Um, and now my day consists of, of, you know, giving interviews by phone or in person or making speeches. So, so my day is very different, but my inner being feels exactly the same. It just feels like I'm using different tools. And I, I don't know, you know, I think that's an important thing to say because I often have people say to me, well, you know, I've changed. I'm more extroverted now because now I am giving more talks or, you know, now I spend my days on conference calls. But I think it's important to be in touch with actually who you really are. And I, I think that's sometimes very different from the role that you're playing. And um, it's useful to know when, when you're simply playing a role and when you're inhabiting your true self. And we all have to play roles. You know, I think that's, that's a very healthy part of being human is to be able to play any number of roles. You know, if you're a parent, you're playing a role to your child some of the time. You may not always, let's say you're, you're disciplining your child, you might not actually feel as stern as you're appearing to your child. You might actually think the thing your child has done is very funny, but you can't show how funny you think it was. Um, and so we need to inhabit those roles. But I think we also need to remember that we actually thought the thing the child did was funny, if that makes sense by analogy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm also wondering, from your perspective, are there things that we ought to know when we think about running a meeting and recognize that there are often a mix of introverts and extroverts in the room? Yeah, yeah, a few important things with that. I mean, so first of all, introverts generally um, need time to think. You know, they don't think on their feet as readily or as happily. So it's really useful to let people know in advance what you're going to be talking about at the meeting. And, you know, to do that in more than a pro forma way, like, I send around the agenda and no one looks at it till they get there. You know, it, it, it would be useful to actually have people sit down and think through the thing that you're going to be talking about at the meeting uh, before they get there. And then same thing on the, on the other side of the meeting, um, to avoid making a decision, if it's something important, to avoid making a decision at the meeting, um, partly because if, you, if there's pressure to make a decision, you are inherently going to be... Um, uh, giving more weight to the more impulsive, more decisive people in the room. Um, but also because things are going to come up at the meeting that need to be thought through and cogitated, and the introverts in particular won't be able to do that as readily, as readily while they're in the meeting. So you want to give people for a, um, to think things through and then to talk with each other about it after, after the meeting is done. Um, you know, and there are, there are companies who have started to think these things through in interesting ways. Like um, Write Solutions, uh, which is a software development company and run by a guy named Jim Lavoy. He, he had previously been at a different company where he found that the people who he calls the quiet geniuses in the company, that their voices weren't getting heard when they had new ideas that they thought the company should be pursuing because the main avenue for introducing new ideas was to make a presentation to what was called the murder board, literally. And then it was like it was the job of the murder board to you know, assess these ideas and, I, I guess, execute you if, you if they thought the ideas weren't good enough. And he said that this had the effect of, um, of rewarding the best presenters and not necessarily the best ideas. So in his new company, what he does is he has an online stock market where everybody in the company, um, you know, all the way down to the level of receptionists, everyone in the company has stock in this market, and they can all introduce ideas online and they can all use their nominal cash to invest in other people's ideas. 
Um, and, and all of this happens online so that, you know, even if you're more of a quiet person, you can introduce your ideas in this way. And some of the company's greatest innovations have come through this process. That's a fascinating process. Well, Susan, thank you very much for joining us today. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.